Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from Sydney's rich and varied history. Last episode, I shared a story. Jed, do you happen to remember what it was about? I do. It was about Billy Blue, um, and not the discounted fine dining experience in Sydney CBD. No, the man himself from the early days of the colony. Yeah, it was a fascinating story, and thanks very much for sharing it. But uh, our guests don't want to hear all about that. They've been looking forward to my topic. They certainly have. And all this talk of bolos and pubs that are also hotels, I think has really kind of got them excited for a good episode about some some responsible drinking. Exactly. Uh, and have your thoughts come along in the last uh, last couple of weeks as to what my topic might be about? I'll repeat my clue for you. Yeah, that would be wonderful. So I said to you that my story for this week is one that took place in every suburb and town across the state of New South Wales. It's a story that is as relevant today as it was 100 years ago. It's a story that is part of the mythos of Sydney, and I think it tells us a little bit more about ourselves and our city than we'd care to admit. Yeah, and I remember that. It's a good clue. What I do remember from from a fortnight ago is that you were... You were much more complimentary of my guesses when they tended towards the hotel pub side of things. And so I'm kind of going along that line because I definitely, especially when I think of the towns of New South Wales and every suburb everywhere has has a kind of pretty central hotel, hotel pub going on. And I guess there's probably some interesting history behind them. So maybe it's something about that. Um, That's what I'm going with definitely in the sphere of the pub. Uh, What if I told you that your friends probably feel more passionately about this topic than you do? Oh, then I'd probably say some things about our friends that are rude and that they... uh... (laughs) (laughs) All right, I won't say that then. Is it it about going out late at night and having a good time? It certainly might be. Because I don't do that, do I? No, not often. Just once in a while when you're, when you're cajoled. What if I said we were going to be discussing the early 20th century version of the lockout laws? Is it possibly about um, the version of prohibition that we had in Sydney, as probably all of New South Wales, um, that meant that you could only drink at certain times in the evening and could it also be tied a little bit to um, regulation coming in banning what are now considered kind of like grade A narcotics that were previously completely legal? Uh, on the first count, yes, absolutely. It is not about anything to do with the nar- narcotic trade, although once again, another fabulous suggestion for a future story. No, you're quite right. We'll be talking about uh, early closing. Excellent. As it was known. Yes, I can't wait. Known in more common parlance as, uh, or at least known today as the six o'clock swill. Yeah, okay. I don't know much about it, but it definitely six o'clock swill rings bells. Yeah, it's one of those terms that gets bandied around, but um, I definitely wouldn't have had anything to contribute on the topic before I dove in and uh, learned a thing or two. But before I begin my story, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast. In my case, that's the Wiradjuri people. And in my case, the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And the land on which this week's history takes place which is indeed the original inhabitants of the uh, what is now the state of New South Wales. Sovereignty was never ceded. So early closing, as it was known, it was brought in in all Australian states and New Zealand in 1916, 1917, and Queensland was bringing up the rear in 1923. 
Mm. Fancy that. Yeah, it was something that had been lobbied for by the temperance movement since the 1870s in Australia. Similar things, as you mentioned, the use of the word prohibition were happening uh, elsewhere in the world. But it wasn't given a huge amount of credence and to that point. But the temperance movement gained strength through the 1890s. And then their big, uh, their big sort of moment came about when the Retail Early Closing Act was passed in New South Wales in 1900 which said that shops had to close at 6 p.m. Right, okay, so everything else is closing at 6 p.m., so why not pubs as well? Yeah, uh, the temperance movement pushed for the inclusion of bars sort of under the pretense of labour laws, and so they had the some of the unions on side around, around this topic that, you know, no one should have to work after 6, right. um, but also the moral necessity, which was their sort of guiding principle. And so this, this line of thinking ended up gaining some sway to the point where a referendum was held. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that this same story was unfolding in every colony at around the same time. So there was some sort of small differences, but really you could apply what was going on in Sydney uh, to the whole country. Right. Okay. Every Australian colony. Yeah. So, yeah. and were those, were the temperance movements, they were technically separate in each colony at the time? Well, actually, weren't they all state? When are we talking? Well, we're talking the 1890s and the first right. decade of the new century. So it's, it was colonies into states. Right. Um, and yeah, they were, they were separate organizations and movements. But um, the, for, for whatever reason, the same sort of agenda was moving forward in, in each place. Right. So in New South Wales, we had a referendum held in 1913. And the question put to the public was, uh, what would be the best time for pubs to shut? You could choose between 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 and 11 and let me guess 11 won out it sure did uh which comes as no surprise but i feel like that's <laughs> the latest a bit of a, option a weasel word in the way it's described because if they had have had you know four or five a.m then uh i'm sure people would have chosen that yeah if you give people only options that are that are early then they choose the latest of all of those and they feel <laughs> yeah. like they won but actually who won that one yeah imagine if seven won or eight yeah. <laughs> a random number in the middle so that, that referendum didn't come come good for the uh, proponents. However, it was shortly after World War I broke out a couple of years later, a similar referendum was held in South Australia and caught up in patriotic fervour of the time, this time 6pm won outright. And oh, okay. so South Australia so- became the first state to implement early closing laws. Because the patriotism and the kind of being a citizen who's... Uh- productive and efficient and kind of working towards the the greater good of your country was kind of for forefront in people's minds yeah exactly um and i think it also it it indicates a shift towards respectable sobriety which was coming along through that time through the temperance movement and it was so it was i mean the war was i guess the factor that uh that pushed it over the edge to become a popular issue but the movement was definitely growing. And we had this interesting coalition between the temperance movement and the trade unions. Yeah, that you mentioned that briefly before. And that is actually really interesting because it's one of those things where it's all well and good to be to say, oh, you should be able to stay out as long as you want drinking. But there are always people working behind that bar. And I have been a person working behind that bar until 2 a.m. And it's not necessarily that fun. Yeah. Interestingly, there was sort of, I guess, two main unions at the time uh, that represented hospitality workers and one of them, the Liquor Trade Employees Union, was on the side of the um, the temperance movement saying that, you know, liquor workers shouldn't have to work after 6 p.m. or whatever. But the other 
uh, trade union representing hospitality workers was on the side of the um, the victuallers union, which was the what you'd now call the hotel lobby. Okay. Who were saying obviously that you know we need longer hours because it's their livelihood. So it was it definitely wasn't a clear cut issue. Right. But um, what particularly interested me about this coalition was that the the temperance movement was predominantly a female movement, mm-hmm. so much so that the main temperance group in New South Wales was called the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Yeah. And trade unions, which and this seems obvious, but I hadn't really considered it, were, were almost exclusively the domain of men. I, I guess because men were the ones working, right? In a society that was far more, had, had strict gender roles uh, for who, who had the job and who was the breadwinner, then the men were probably the ones engaged in labor. More often, I'm not in parts sure of the that unions. I'm not uh, more often. Yes, but I'm not sure to say that uh, men were more engaged in labour. It's just that men were organised. Women right, weren't okay. perceived as part of the labour force, except in sort of specific circumstances. So obviously, on farms, women worked. Right, but they weren't in a union. They were they were private. Um, you know, they were uh, they were working alongside their husband, yeah. or they were owners, or whatever. Uh, women worked. You know, pre- before they got married, or whatever. But once again. Labor probably wasn't the uh, at that point in time the organizing principle in their lives, right? Um, and so that's why it was interesting for me that the that the temperance movement was a group of women choosing to adopt the term union to, I guess, um, you know, get that sort of strength and solidarity that had been the domain of men uh, prior to that point. Yeah, and actually, in an interesting link to a previous episode. The episode that we had about the first, uh, sorry, the last woman hanged in uh, New South Wales, Mm. Louisa Collins, a lot of the advocacy on her behalf, the kind of strong arguments, the marches uh, from town hall to the governor's house to try to get her let off or uh, not, not executed, they were led by women who also would go on to to be very um, significant figures in the early days of these uh, women's temperance unions. In, and that was in the late 1880s, early 1890s, I believe. Yeah, so it's, it certainly was almost like the, uh, I guess, the leading or the main the main cause for, for women's organization at the time yeah. was around the issue of temperance. And I imagine which makes actually domestic, domestic violence probably would tie into that to some extent because I, I imagine that drinking late at night... Uh, male partners drinking late at night would have some kind of strong relation to domestic violence. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I've done much research into the motivations behind the temperance movement, um, but that would certainly would speak to uh, one of the issues that I would imagine would have been important. Yeah. So we're now into World War I, and public opinion is swinging towards abstinence and away from benders and debauchery. (laughs) Abstinence after 6 p.m. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, no, in New South Wales, there's still uh, pub closing time is still 11. Yep. Pressure is gaining. Pressure is pressure is mounting. And then in 1916, we have an event that goes by two names, according to its uh, excellent Wikipedia article that I would recommend anyone read. It was known as either the Liverpool Riot of 1916. Oh, I know that this is, I wanted to do an episode about this. Or alternatively, do you know it's other than Monica? Uh, no, but is, is it, it's the... The men who were in kind of a bar- military barracks who catch trains into Central Station and go on a riot. That's exactly right. And so the other name is called the Battle of Central Station. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, are you happy for me to give a run through of it or do you have the story Oh, covered? no, absolutely. I, 
yeah, I, I think it's a fascinating story. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Let, Probably let, worth its own episode, but instead I'll just uh, I'll just take a brief aside to go into it here. Yeah, look, and then we can do more. We can do another episode on it, but yeah, let, I, I'd love to hear about it. Okay, so basically as World War I kicked off, we had all these young men from across the state pouring into training camps on the outskirts of Sydney. I think like, like a lot of things at the time, the conditions weren't great. And so in, at the army camp in Kazula, uh, in southwestern Sydney, a protest kicked off and uh, against the conditions of the camp. And we had 5,000 protesters marching into Liverpool where they were met by uh, troops from other camps and the numbers swelled to 15,000 troops protesting. And this is where the story gets juicy. So I'm actually just going... That's a, a lot of men. It's a, it's a huge number of men, uh, you know, predominantly aged around 18 to 20. Yeah, a lot of angry young men. And now I'm going to quote from Wikipedia here. Uh, which is probably poor form, but I can say that almost all of this is a widely agreed fact, but it is very well written and funny. So I couldn't resist. (laughs) Wikipedia does have some pearls. So here we go. They invaded a number of local hotels, drinking the bars dry, refusing to pay, and started to vandalise buildings. The soldiers then gained control of Liverpool train station, overpowered the engineers, and commandeered trains headed towards Sydney where they began rampaging drunkenly through Sydney streets, smashing windows and targeting anyone with a foreign-sounding name. Yeah. Including Italian restaurants, even though Italy was an ally of Australia in the war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like, you know, you're kind of funny in a very dark way because, like, obviously it's it's just so sad how, how anger can go from, from about working conditions and pay and things like that in an army camp to... to you know, beating up foreigners and smashing windows of foreign, well, foreign sounding businesses. Like it becomes a race riot really quickly for no apparent reason. Yeah, definitely a, definitely a story that echoes through history. Yeah. Um, so shops and hotels were looted and people were forced to take refuge in churches to avoid the soldiers. Police reinforcements were called in and began battling the soldiers in the streets of Sydney. Yeah. At Central Railway Station, armed military guards found a group of over 100 drunken soldiers destroying a toilet block and demanded they surrender. A shot was fired by a rioting soldier over the guards' heads, and in response, the guards returned fire, killing one soldier and seriously injuring eight others. This incident had a sobering effect on the soldiers, and many began surrendering to police and military guards, although small bands of soldiers continued to cause damage throughout the night. Yeah, and in this... this uh brief shootout at central station i believe that law has it there is still a chipped piece of marble where a bullet had hit the wall wow i did not know that that's awesome yeah Uh, where is it so i tried to look for it actually when we got home from visiting you in orange um in that kind of main concourse i couldn't find it but i also it was late at night and uh, we had a crying baby and my wife was none too pleased that i was trying to inspect a piece of marble (laughs) from For her that gun. is pretty, pretty outrageous. <laughs> for a bullet chip. Um, but uh, it's meant to be, I'm not going to be very good at describing it. You come in on the kind of the main, into the main concourse. And then if you were facing towards the CBD and you went left out towards what's now kind of like a parking loop, car mm-hmm. park loop. And there's kind of a colonnade area just as you're exiting there. Yeah. And I think there's an ATM or a payphone or something on your left. Something yep. like that. It's meant to be around there somewhere. Okay. Well, this is pretty serendipitous that uh, 
I happened to talk about this story just a few weeks after you were searching for this obscure chip. <laughs> yeah, there's some things that stick in your mind and a, a soldier's riot uh, of pretty significant proportion in Sydney is, is one thing that I've never forgotten about since finding out about it. So the last piece of the story is that following the riot, which was described as the most disgraceful episode in our military history, about a thousand soldiers were court-martialed and either jailed or discharged from the army. Okay. However, because Australia was desperate for recruits to fight the war, so many soldiers escaped punishment and were sent overseas, while the government, anxious to keep the image of the Australian digger as positive as possible, some things just don't change, discouraged the media from covering the event. Yeah, and the thing that's really interesting about it is actually, I think that it ties quite closely into why the Gallipoli campaign was has become such a enormous part of the Australian mythology, because I think actually at the time, I mean, it's it, that's a significant riot. That it's not like a couple of loose cannons. Like it's tens of thousands, well, at least ten thousand people, uh, and it was a massive event at the time that really did not look good and so the 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 Gallipoli campaign comes very soon afterwards I believe the next year and it was kind of that was the that was the the way of that was a convenient branding exercise yes it it was the opportunity to to change the image and to to create a different narrative around it well as far as our brand exercises go they did a bloody good job they uh, they have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams because (laughs) no one knows about this riot so few people i'd never heard of it never heard whisper of it and yet everyone hears about gallipoli every year at school basically for their entire school career yeah and it doesn't stop after school mate (laughs) no that's true but you know it's in the textbooks definitely there's no riot in the textbooks no there's not But so in the light of this event, the referendum on early closing, which is indeed the topic we're talking about today, uh, was posed again in 1916. And this time, 6pm won with 62% of the vote. Was it the same format? 6, 7, 8, 9, 10? No, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And then the change in that sudden change in preference within three years was largely seen as due to the war effort and the need for an industrious national character at the time. And also the debauched <laughs> soldiers having a riot. Yeah, I'm sure that didn't do the uh, cause any favours. But um, interestingly on that topic, Sydney as a whole actually voted against the change. They did not support six o'clock. Oh. Uh, it was largely from regional areas. Hmm. But Sydney, uh, as opposed to today, Sydney didn't have the population to carry the vote right. at that point in time. Right. So then uh, in that year, the pubs were then forced to six o'clock close, which, of course, uh, had a lot of, a lot of flow and effects. As you'd expect, a huge amount of drinking activity just went underground. Yeah. Um, and so we ended up with some elaborate mechanisms that got put in place to allow pubs to continue trading. Yeah, because if you've had a couple of drinks and it's 6 p.m., the like, you probably want another one in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. and it was especially, especially in smaller towns um, where, you know, the local cops probably... Uh, might not have agreed with the rule or might have taken a sort of softly approach to it yeah. um, as long as no one was causing any trouble. So it seems like from uh, from a lot of newspaper coverage of uh, using terms like illicit hour afters trading and talking about citations for sly grogging, this is in the, 20, in the late teens, 20s, and even the 30s, it's fair to assume that when the laws changed, trade didn't exactly respond to enthusiasm and continued maybe more or less as it had previously. Right. 
Annie, you're going to tell us a little bit about these mechanisms they use to hide their sly grogging. Yes, Excellent. yes, I am. So some methods we had in, in particular, this is in metro areas, uh, more so than country areas, but we had uh, features such as electric bells that were installed Ooh. to warn of police. Ooh, I like uh, it. We had secret upstairs drinking rooms. Because as we know, a good Australian pub is indeed a cavernous building. Right, right. And what goes on downstairs? Just kind of just an innocent tea in scones? Well, yeah, basically, because the restaurants could stay open and the pubs could stay open. They just couldn't serve alcohol. Okay. So they would have these lounge bars, um, you know. Yeah, so effectively, yeah. yes, <laughs> tea and scones. Um, <laughs> Nothing to see Or like here. a ladies bar, which a lot of pubs had a ladies bar okay. that didn't serve alcohol anyway. Yeah. Yeah, these sorts of things stayed, but... I mean, whether anyone could run a business using this model without alcohol uh, is questionable. Some other strategies were falsifying lodger ledgers because uh, I think that in certain in certain states it was fine for pe- uh, people who were staying the night in the hotel to keep drinking in the hotel. Okay, because they couldn't go home and have a drink. But- exactly. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, in Victoria. The uh, the police commissioner in the 1920s, Thomas Blamey, was often seen drinking after hours at fashionable hotels. So this was a sort of insurance policy for guests against raids if you were at the same pub as the police commissioner. <laughs> You're probably all right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure that happened in towns. You know, if the cops right. are at the pub, you know you're sweet. And you know, you know all the cops, kind of, yeah, personally. Yeah. And, I mean, it was really this time when the whole bottle shop industry came into being in oh, uh, Australia. The, the, the off-license. Because prior to that, alcohol was... It wasn't against the law or anything to be served as a takeaway, but it was just much less common. Uh, people tended to drink at the pub. Once you couldn't, we ended up with this, yeah, sort of a... As much we've seen in the last year, actually, this sort of repositioning of a lot of businesses towards takeaway. Yeah. Well, I definitely also that's a story of the 20th century, the movement away from drinking in common areas like pubs and towards bringing alcohol into the home and just drinking at home. Yeah, exactly. We even had in the 1920s, the RSL claimed that the recently returned soldiers were turning to cocaine instead of alcohol. All right. Well, that I guess that's also an effect that still happens to this day when you make alcohol really, really expensive with uh, alcohol pops tax and things like that. I'm sure that I'm sure I'm not sure how many statistics there, uh, there are on it, but you'd have to think that that's driving up consumption of other uh, substances. Yeah, and I mean the price of cocaine must have been much more reasonable in 1920 than uh, 2020 in Sydney. I, I believe it was. Uh, there, there's a couple of things about uh, cocaine that might come into the episode uh, in a fortnight's time. Oh, excellent. I look forward to it. Um, and, of course, the the most significant change brought about by early trading was the famed five o'clock rush to the bar. Ah, uh, because you finished work and you only have an hour to drink. Exactly right. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But you'd be... Really, you'd, you have a short window there. Yeah, so that's the, that's, that's the six o'clock swill, uh, is this one hour between five and six where you had to get in and uh, get as much down you as you possibly could before closing. Okay, so Alistair, this one's for you. Tell me, when did early closing end in New South Wales? Oh, um, it went through the 30s at least because I um, have done a little bit of reading about that. Um, I imagine it might be one of those things that goes surprisingly for much longer than I would expect. Um, possibly into the 60s, maybe. 
is my guess, but maybe I'm just dead wrong on that. The other, uh, yeah, that's my, my guess is the 60s. <laughs> the other, no, forget that distraction, <laughs> 60s. Yeah, you're uh, you're pretty much on the money. Uh, it was, in New South Wales, it was 1955, oh. but... Um, it did vary between states, so you're you're definitely right somewhere. Nice. I'm well. I'm glad about that. I also the the aside was so there's so many. I th- I think both of us think about the history of drinking in Sydney probably more than <laughs> than your average punter, and I've uh, often thought about the the huge amount of uh, Art Deco pubs in Sydney and indeed in New South Wales. Mm. Uh, which now that I think about it more, and with these early closing laws is you'd think that they would have less money or they would be a less profitable business because they had these restrictions and therefore they wouldn't be building large amounts of new pubs. But obviously they were because there's... That is an excellent observation, Alistair. And I'm just going to park that thought for a moment because we definitely will come to that. (laughs) Oh, I'm so glad. I've always wanted to know more about this. This is excellent. (laughs) So... The term swill, is that one you've come across in this context before? The the six o'clock swill, it, it just sounds some, it rings a bell, but I, I don't particularly know it well. Okay, so it's the, it's the term that I always knew this phenomenon under. And um, so for me, it's the, it's the word that I associate with early closing, but it actually didn't come into the public, public consciousness until the 40s and 50s. Okay. Um, because I guess it's, it's a, you know, it's a, <laughs> It's a term to describe a, a liquid mess of any kind, particularly that which is given to pigs. Oh, wow. Okay. And also the, the verb uh, to feed with swill, which or to swill hogs, which is to drink greedily or excessively. I, I, yeah, okay. Well, in that case, then I definitely do know the term swill applied to, to humans drinking liquids, predominantly beer. But I, I never realized that it had that etymology. I just thought of it as you kind of like swish it around in your glass and knock it down. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite pastime of you, the swishing action. No, it's the uh, it's the greedy consumption thereof. And ah. so I think that the the fact that this came about in the forties and fifties, towards the back end of early closing, suggests that um, the popular opinion was starting to turn against it. Right. And so we see a greater level of compliance with the laws at this point in time, which I suspect came about because there's a whole new generation of drinkers <laughs> yeah. that were just used to the laws. So they were frustrated by it and spoke out against it, but probably also followed it to a to a larger extent than their um their dads had. Yeah, I think yeah, it's, I think that happens quite a lot with laws that when they're first put in place, people just continue doing what they've always done. But then if you can get it, if you can keep it there for long enough, you've got a generation coming through who've never known anything else. They're they're probably more compliant just by default. Yeah, forty years. Yeah, in the context of Sydney, is a just a huge amount of time. Yeah. So to get to get into the mood to help us feel like we're in in a pub in Sydney CBD between five and six p.m. in the uh, perhaps in the nineteen forties or early nineteen fifties, you're going to <laughs> got the smell of a musty carpet. <laughs> yeah, well, perhaps not. Uh, but we're going to we're going to refer to a few quotes because they just oh yeah great you know, as always say it so much better than I ever could. It wouldn't be an episode from Jed without a few quotes. A few hundred quotes in this instance. So the first one I'll start with is a picture journalist John Larkin's memories of the last years of the swill. Ankle deep at 5.30pm in a morass of cigarette butts decomposing in slopped grog 
a howling thirsty mass crawling over each other to demand 15 beers each to drink in the last desperate guzzling minutes. Oh, wow. I hadn't thought about that. So, yeah, how many you could order? You could order yourself quite a few drinks. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And uh, English cricketer William Pollock, who I've never heard of, but you might have, said that uh, Australians don't drink but gulp with both eyes on the clock. Oh, wow. So presumably the laws were different in England then. Yeah, no, I think it, yeah, I think it was a peculiarly Australian um, thing. They definitely have strange hours in in uh, historically in England, but I think that they open back up. Like they they're open for lunch and then open it for dinner, but then there's a in between time when they're closed. I don't know the details, and it's not really relevant for this podcast. But yeah, well, you have to start your own podcast about. UK drinking history, and then you can delve into that. But this one's about Sydney. It's nowhere near as interesting. Tell me more. We're going to get to the Art Deco pubs as well, which I can't wait. We for. will, we will. And uh, one more is a poem written by a member of the New South Wales United Licensed Victualers Association, which is the forerunner to the hotel lobby. Yeah. And the poem is called Six O'clock or Ten O'clock Plaints of the Average Man. Nice. They're just sticking up for the average man, the hotel lobby. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That then and now. Okay. Six o'clock, gentlemen, please. Oh, why can't I drink at my ease? When I finish working at 5.45, I go for my life so that I can arrive and join all the rest in a desperate race to swallow my beer at a breathtaking pace. But haunting my drink is the publican's face and his six o'clock, gentlemen, please. Mm. It's a dire time. I believe the correct response to that is that, is that you like how both the first and the last line are the same. <laughs> oh, I, I missed that, uh, that piece of poetic genius. Um, I might have to cut some of these, but I'm going, no, no, I'm going no. to continue with more. They're good. They're good. It's great. It's always nice to hear the voices of, you know, the 1950s or whenever it is kind of coming yeah, through. Hopefully it's colouring the time for you. Yeah. So this one's from uh, Interstate. The Adelaide Advertiser posed a rhetorical question to its readers. Does a clock make people temperate? Rushed drinking contrasted with a kind of drinking dictated not by mechanical time, but an older organic time. Mm. Nostalgic comparisons were made with an older kind of inn where men could talk of politics, of sport, and of the wickedness of foreign potentates and practice leisurely drinking and deliberate discourse. That that one is great. That could almost have been written yesterday. I feel like it's yeah. all, the, all the talk of like organic, earthy, back to the roots of true conversation in society. Yeah, that one's great. I, I love a good uh, reference to simpler times when everything was, you know, just beautiful and flawless when not not a, not a care in the world no alcohol fueled violence no when men just waxed lyrical about poetry and philosophy <laughs> in the old local tavern but it makes me think that maybe the whole early closing act was really just a capitalistic ruse <laughs> to make sure that men really really got a lot of drinks down them well yeah you you rush you know you work all day and then rush out of there get pissed as quickly as possible and get home to Get on with, you know. Yeah, get to bed on time. You're ready for, a, you know, good hard day's work. No late starts if you're at home at six o'clock. No. So this is where we, in the story, Alistair, we get to the uh, your Art Deco pubs and ask what were the impacts on the uh, built environment of Sydney yeah. from the six o'clock swill. It's one of the most noticeable things about Sydney and also... 
uh, I imagine in stark contrast in stark contrast to at least uh, the USA, where presumably you couldn't be building Art Deco drinking establishments because there was complete prohibition uh, during the 30s there. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so what happened basically was that the interior design of the pubs was completely reshaped to match with the new drinking culture. Right. So whereas previously pubs had uh, pool tables and tables and um you know booths um all the sorts of things that we might consider today as like cozy right right um that all had to go because now you had one hour of the day in which to make all your money and you need to the most serve important thing everyone at the same time yeah and so this is why we have the design of pubs uh in sydney which still continues to this day which is these absurdly long bars yeah and only tables with stools and not that many of them. Yeah. And huge amounts of space. Right. Like loads of like bizarre standing space where everyone just kind of awkwardly stands now but doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's because there's not 200 people crammed in there rushing for a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. That explains so much. Yeah. So we have, we have here an article from the Herald describing the conditions in a city hotel during the rush in 1945. And they say, a small bar, poorly lighted, packed with men literally fighting their way to the counter. Tempers rising because the service could not meet demand, because early comers held to places at the bar, because the collars were too high on hastily drawn glasses. This was a time of supposedly convivial drinking. It would be impossible to imagine more degrading, even nauseating conditions. Yeah, wow. So I feel like from this it's fair to say that the culture of rapidly consuming beers from that time period continues in Sydney. I mean, so much of what they describe sounds exactly like a crap pub in the city on a Friday evening. Yeah, definitely that feeling of trying to just, I mean, normally I'm not trying to order 15 beers, but when you're just like, I just want to get a drink, but you can't get to the bar. Yes, yeah, everyone just is packed in. It's, yeah, it's a very familiar sensation. It might be a, a bit of a longbow to draw to say that's entirely the fault of the temperance movement. But it but is. I think they've certainly got some culpability. Well, it's also just very different from a uh, setup like you were saying with booths and cozy areas and little uh, pool tables or whatever it is, where actually you could then stay at your booth and someone would come around and serve you, which is the case in some countries. Yeah, and I think it goes to explain why we don't have that in Australia. Yeah, we just um, really you don't. go to the bar and you get your drink. Yeah. And that actually uh, goes through to even, and I don't know whether this is a really long bow, but it's also the case for cafes, interesting, and lots of places in Australia that we have a lot of, you you go up to the counter and pay, you don't stay at the table, but definitely in the the pub uh, sphere, that definitely has to be coming from exactly what you're explaining now. Hmm. So that's uh, that's the bulk of the story, but I do have a couple of interesting asides I'd like to, uh, to dive into. Now, one is the rise in Sydney uh, pre-early closing, um, but during the sort of strength of the temperance movement at the the back end of the 19th century of coffee palaces. Okay, like it. Does that mean anything to you? Uh, I So, not in Sydney. I don't know much about coffee palaces in Sydney. Um, apart from potentially... Uh, I think one of the very first China, uh, coffee palaces was opened by a man of Chinese origin. And I heard about that in some story I was reading uh, about the 
I think it was Chinese New Year celebrations, and it was about the history of uh, Chinese uh, entrepreneurs in Sydney. Um, but also coffee. I know that coffee houses were a really, really big deal um, in London, I think, for, I don't know, a century or so. They were the, the place to be. And what were they? Uh, I A place to drink coffee and I think do business to some extent. So, I can only speak to the context of Sydney. Well, that's all we need to know about. <laughs> but what they basically were was... Imagine a, just a, a pub at the at the end of the nineteenth century. You know, it's a it's a bar. It uh, might be a restaurant. It's definitely accommodation for people. Yeah. Um, a coffee palace was the same thing, but without alcohol. Okay. So how this manifest was that we had these uh, you know big names associated with the temperance movement that wanted to create. They thought, well, a lot of this is probably just because there's nowhere to socialize in the evening that isn't centered around alcohol. So let's build that place. So, uh, and there was obviously some money behind it because in we have some really beautiful buildings in the CBD that were originally built as coffee palaces. Oh, wow. And also quite a few pubs that were converted into coffee palaces um, around this time. Okay. Actually, I'm thinking about what I was saying you can disregard it because i was thinking about like the early coffee like when coffee was first introduced to british society so it would have been centuries earlier and they were all very excited about coffee but you're talking like there's a very specific time in sydney history once the temperance movement yeah they're really nothing to do with i mean they were definitely sold coffee but, but it's it not about coffee uh, yeah okay yeah, absolutely oh interesting okay so that it's a this brief window in the late 1800s yeah so we had new coffee houses built and we also had uh, a lot of pubs convert into coffee houses and then when the uh, moment passed, converted back to pubs huh. um, or demolished. So a couple of examples yes. are the Hotel Grand Central on Clarence Street, which was built as a pub in the gold rush years, then converted to a coffee palace in the temperance years, then knocked down in the 20s and is now a large office block. Oh, but can you still see some <laughs> of the architecture of it? No, that one was knocked down. Completely knocked down. Okay. Completely knocked down. I think I've got a photo of that one that I'll be sharing. And we've got Ellis's Coffee Palace on York Street, which opened as a pub in 1886, was converted into a coffee palace in 1916, was converted back into a pub, the York Hotel, in 1922, was largely demolished to make way for an office block in 1985, although you'll be pleased to know the facade was retained. Excellent. And there's still a pub in the basement. Oh. And interestingly, that pub actually forms... We were talking about heritage listings last week, specific heritage listings. Yeah. The pub in the basement, which is, you know, effectively in a basement of a 80s apartment, uh, 80s office block. Right. Forms part of the heritage listing for the site. So the fact that it's continuing to trade. And I've been into this pub and it is an absolute dive. It was one of those places where you could, you know, get a beer at 5 a.m. Nice. Uh, Pre-lockout laws. So... It's it's hard to and it's just a it's just a basement so it's hard to imagine that that's a really a continuation of the history of the York Hotel and the Coffee Palace that preceded it. Doesn't feel like a Coffee Palace. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Are, are there any that still exist? Like the, the bulk of their architecture is still there? Not that I know of. Um, might yeah, could be worth considering. Couldn't say. Couldn't say. Sounds like a challenge, the search for, for New South Wales. If anyone can find a, uh, a coffee palace that still functions as a coffee palace to this day, 
uh, please let us know. Or, or a pub now, but was a coffee palace. That would be great. So the, uh, to sum up that, in the words of Robin Room, whose article I read on the topic of coffee palaces, the 1880s saw a boom in temperance coffee palaces in the capital cities. Intended as grandiose and profitable competitors to the, ta- competitors to the taverns, but it became clear that they were neither effective competition nor profitable. You really can't. Yeah, I think that's a story as old as time itself. You can't beat alcohol. <laughs> Don't even try. Uh, and on on the note of alcohol, something else I was sort of curious. I thought you, I thought you might prompt me about this one, but you haven't. Oh, sorry. Disappointing. Yeah. Um, was what uh, was a, how drinking trends sort of waxed and waned throughout the history of Sydney through all these time periods we had of, uh, you know, the, the boom in drinking and then the temperance movement and then early closing and then uh, the reintroduction of late closing since then. How did uh, all these sorts of changes and cultural changes as well affect how much how much alcohol people were consuming? I would love to know. Well, good, because I've prepared some very, very rough basic stats on the topic. So in the 1920s, when, which is, you know, a rough analogy for um, when early closing came in, alcohol consumption per capita was steady at just over two thirds of what it had been in the 1890s. Okay. And less than one third of what it was in the 1830s. Wow. Okay. So it had really gone, but the 1830s a long time before then. That's still like convict era. Yeah. Yeah. But so we'd seen a, and I mean, look, there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that, and one one would be that, as you said, you know, in in the 1830s, the society was almost exclusively adult men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so so from the early days of the colony, there was basically a downward, a steady downward trajectory in alcohol consumption until it bottomed out in 1932. Okay. At just less than two and a half liters of pure alcohol per person per annum. I, I love that that's that someone has those those stats. <laughs> I mean, I would question the veracity of them to some extent, <laughs> yeah. but as rough figures, I think we can use yeah, them. Yeah. So 1932 is the low point. 1932, we had 2.5 liters of pure alcohol per person per annum, and for comparison, in the early colonial days, it was about 12 liters. Yeah, because they were just drinking like spirits and, and a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so for some contemporary comparison. Uh, we can say that that figure in 1932 is about 250 standard drinks per person per year. Okay. Which isn't that... much alcohol, I wouldn't say. Well, it depends who you're talking to. I probably don't drink that much. I drink a lot less than that, I'd say. 250 standard drinks a year? Yeah. I mean, there's only... Okay, there's 360 days in a year. I don't drink... I almost never drink during the week. And on the on the weekend, I might have like three or four standard drinks. That's only two beers. Yeah, I, I wait. Yeah, jeez. Yeah, I know. I'm a shell of my former self. Back to the 1930s with you, right? Well, that figure rose steadily until the late 1970s, where it peaked at 9.5 liters per person, uh, which is gold rush era levels. Oh wow! Okay, so the 70s were a heyday for drinking. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, it dropped and leveled back out in the late 80s, and we're still at 8.4 litres. So that's still... 840 standard drinks per person per year. Right. I imagine that's still quite a lot more than now. Yeah, uh, it is. Um, and so basically then for the 20th century, we see alcohol consumption over the history of the colony is sort of uh, it's got two peaks Yeah. in the uh, 
1830s and the 1970s with a big dip in the middle that drops down to the early 1930s. Yeah, and, and we're going back into a dip of sorts now or not so much? Yeah, so some uh, contemporary data from, well, contemporary-ish from 2010 is that Belarus is the largest consumer of alcohol per person per capita at 17.6 litres and Australia is the 19th in the world at 122 now, you might well wonder why that's even higher than the 70s, and that is because that contemporary data is only people over 15. All the previous data uh, okay. is total alcohol consumption divided by total population, so it's including children. Okay, I'm glad you cl- clarified that because I was like, I've got lost in the numbers. That seems like much larger numbers than all these other ones. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, the easy answer to your question is no, I don't have a good contemporary comparison. Right, but I think you can, yeah, I, yeah, I guess you can kind of vaguely guess. That's a bit Yeah, lower. it's dropped off slightly. Yeah. Not dramatically, but slightly. So the uh, that brings us to the end of the swill. So we had a, another referendum. There used to be oh, yeah, yeah. a what? dime a dozen, the old referendums. Yeah, we don't have as many anymore, do we? Uh, I, I wouldn't mind going back to the referendum days. Now we've just got the government just, you know, <laughs> making tell us what's going on. <laughs> More referendum. <laughs> kind of like the idea that we all went down and decided together. The Swiss model. Also, if they give us like multiple choice referendums, that's great. I feel yeah, like they're totally. always yes, no now. What about like six yeah. o'clock, eight o'clock, ten? Yeah, that's how I want my referendums. Yeah, or really specific. <laughs> so the 1947 referendum in New South Wales uh, on the topic was the same, except this time they didn't include 11. So we could choose between six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Oh, wow. So And six o'clock came out ahead again. Still popular. When's this? 1947. Okay. So yes, I'm going to attribute that to the, the the patriotic swell of uh enthusiasm for moderate behavior. Yeah, okay. There's... And probably all the soldiers that were returned soldiers that were running riot across the city. <laughs> Possibly. Uh and then obviously the powers that be weren't too pleased about the result of that referendum because 7 years later in 1954 we had another one. Uh-huh. And that one had a narrow victory for 10 p.m., which was instigate, instituted the following year. Okay. About 10 p.m. is still quite early. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's all relative. Yeah. Like everything. But the 11 o'clock's off the cards. Those were the wild days of the, uh, of the 1910s. Yeah. And uh, the media played a big role in the sort of wrapping up of the, of the um, popular opinion against 6 o'clock closing. And there's some great articles from the time that use all this sort of swill language. So we've got the rise of barnyard references in the media and other sources. So a couple of quotes are crowds howling for beer, behaving like drunken beasts, beer swilling around and the swinish aftermath of it that are to be seen any day or night, men being forced to stand around bars like cattle around a trough, hoggishly swilling, uh, and the disgusting sight that one man witnessed in a Sydney pub what I saw reminded me of when I was a boy on the farm watching the pigs feed. And then this classic uh, from Come In Spinner, which is a novel written in the 40s by a swill bartender. The public bar gets more like Taronga Zoo at feeding time every day. <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't sound pleasant. And I feel like <laughs> thinking about, and, and it's really great that you brought in the fact that still the kind of interior design of pubs really does reflect this era thinking about that thinking about crammed full of men like fighting for a drink in very short amount of time that they're able to have one you get a really clear picture of what it would have been like and it doesn't sound that pleasant 
No, it sounds gross. The smoking indoors as well. Like, I mean, it's one thing to think, ah, you know, smoking indoors, sitting in a nice booth, that sounds really lovely, but quite another to be like people shoved in at the bar, like with lit cigarettes in your face. Chain smoking and fighting for space and trying to drink 15 beers. Yeah. Yeah. What a a world. (laughs) So we had the media piping up with all these barnyard imagery. And we also had this, the returned soldiers, uh, in telling us all about, um, sort of playing the role of, I guess, the modern-day tourist, telling us about, you know, the sophisticated European way of doing things. <laughs> it's like, it's uh, the... You know, drinking all night on the street and no social problems, whatever, whatsoever, so... Yeah, it's kind of like the, the gap year equivalent. They've, But they've obviously fought through a horrific war, so I, I do qualify that. <laughs> they came that. back and were de- determined to tell us. <laughs> to bring the European way, yeah. Yeah, well, we've been trying, but... Uh, just doesn't seem to pan out. No. Seem better at bringing the American way over here than anything else. Yeah. It's very, very good at spreading itself the American way. So, Alistair, that brings me to the end of our story about the six o'clock swill, also known as the Early Trading Act. And for me, I think that it's uh, an interesting, an interesting chapter in a bigger story about efforts to restrict drinking in Sydney. So there was obviously the Rum Rebellion, which you know, was ostensibly an effort to restrict to drinking. Um, and then, of course, more recently, the lockout laws, which feel like a lot of the same tropes repeated over and over again. Now, they've been repealed, which no one would know because COVID happened. But um, even, you know, even even still the same government that repealed them is sort of big on uh, setting minimum cop numbers for music festivals, like as a as a tool to push them out of business, basically. And even it took until 2010 for small bars to be legally allowed to operate in Sydney without being restaurants as well. And then as we learned from the uh, the Pioneer Brewery operator the other day, you know, we have extremely aggressive alcohol taxes that make it expensive and frustrating for small business owners to, to operate. Yeah, and, and particularly on beer as well. Yeah, yeah. It definitely feels like there's a tension between um, the sort of authoritarian bent of Sydney ciders in our, our eagerness to sort of... Uh, have our, uh, our our way we spend our spare time and the way we drink controlled by laws and, and police, but also our absolute love of getting soused. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and strangely, those two things going together. So now we need to keep this good system that we have where everyone really, really goes for it between five and six. <laughs> Work, works perfectly. Yeah. Well, fascinating story, Jed. I really... Um, yeah, I really liked the way that this this episode was more about a broader trend over the course of even roughly a century. Um, and then the, within it, the kind of the interesting anecdotes and stories. There was a lot there that that's often on my mind, like about definitely that uh, the riot in the during the First World War, the architecture of the Art Deco pubs, kind of lots of stuff. And you've kind of brought it all together um, in a really interesting way. Yeah, it was a bit loose on the structure. There wasn't a coherent sort of thesis to bring it all together. But um, yeah, I hope I, uh, I hope I t- gave did the story justice, and uh, yeah, just maybe brought about uh, something from Sydney's history that people might not think of every day. Um, and I'm I am truly sorry that I can't tell you of where a coffee house building still stands. I did try, and I thought I was did pretty good job with those two examples. One of which I've got a photo of. The other of which nice. the facade is still there. Yeah. And I've been in the building, no, they... but uh, <laughs> that's never enough, is it? No, no, you did a great job with that. I, uh, 
yeah, I'm just, I, I'm very interested. So I, w- I want to know even more. It's also a good challenge. I'm sure that someone out there listening has knows a little bit more about a historical coffee house. Yeah, we could probably go there for a latte or something perhaps a little, little stronger. Yeah, latte and a... <laughs> and uh, in, a, in another f- funny little coincidence, I also have Hugo to thank for this week's suggestion oh, no uh, of a story. Yeah, um, I guess just goes to show that if you get in there and make suggestions, there's a fair chance that we'll get on board and tell those stories. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed this one, Hugo. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Another great suggestion. Okay, well, I think that just wraps up this week's story from Sydney. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed telling it. And uh, Alistair, I believe it's your turn to throw out a clue for uh, what we can expect for next episode. Uh, So my clue for the next episode in a fortnight's time is that it, like my last episode, has strong implications of smuggling going on behind the scenes. But actually, the story for next fortnight remains somewhat of an armless mystery. (laughs) And our classic... (laughs) Apostrophe armless joke. Uh, you've seen them before and you certainly will see them again. <laughs> I have come across one or two in my time, uh, which incidentally is the number of arms someone could have. So I d- unfortunately, I do not know of anyone in Sydney's history with one or zero arms. Um, arm, But based on some illusions you made throughout this episode... I have a sneaking suspicion that this might be to do with the early 20th century narcotic trade in Sydney. Yeah, it might indeed. It's uh, definitely a story from the 20th century this time. Uh, yeah, from the that period that you've been talking about this episode, kind of 1930s Depression era. Wonderful. And I think it's more, more rel- relatively more well-known uh, story for our podcast. Um, but I'm looking forward to telling you all about it. Well, if it's well-known, you're going to have to do it justice. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about that. (laughs) And I also like that we seem to have uh, inadvertently come onto some sort of, uh, like, chronological theme here with last season dominated by colonial stories and this one leaning towards the uh, early 20th century. I like it. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a a lot of history to move between, and I'm glad that we're kind of doing some different time periods now. Wonderful. Well... I look forward to hearing about that next week. And thank you for listening, everyone. We hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City, as much as we enjoyed making it. If you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or you'd like to know more about anything you heard on our podcast, or more importantly, if you'd like to tell us more about anything that you heard on this week's podcast, then please reach out to us through our Facebook page, Stories from Sydney, our Instagram, Stories from Sydney, or our email, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. There's a running theme there. Uh, If you have any suggestions for a story that we uh, will all enjoy, please do let us know. We really appreciate the suggestions and we've uh, particularly, obviously, taken them on board this season and we really appreciate the uh, suggestions from Hugo especially. Um, It's best to email us those suggestions and as we always say, please do indicate whether the suggestion is for Alistair or for Jed so that only one of us reads it. And we can kind of maintain the mystery and the clue giving for the other, for the listener. And if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, you can rate or review it wherever you found it. And please share with your friends and family so that uh, 
our community of amateur historians can continue to grow. See you next time for my story from Sydney. Nice. <laughs>